Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month-by-month look at the modern rock charts. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and today we are talking about October 1993. Joining me today is Sice of the Boo Radleys. Welcome. Hi. Uh, hello. Nice to, you, nice to uh, be on, Will. Yeah, thanks for joining me. You know, uh, I can't wait to talk about your band and hear some of your story, but before we do... I like to kick things off with a song from Lower Down on the charts this month. This is what I like to call the mystery achievement. It's just an opportunity for listeners to see if they remember a song that maybe they haven't heard in a while. So here we go. This is the mystery achievement for the episode. This one hit number 24 on the modern rock charts in October of 1993. before. No, I had not heard that one before either. But that one was by a band called Tripping Daisy. The song is called My Umbrella, and it's from their first album, Bill. Ah, okay, yeah. Three points to any listeners who got that one. Moving on. Sice, so I introduced you as lead singer of the Boo Radleys. Uh-huh. These days, you're spending a lot of time in a, a different career. Mm. After the band initially broke up, you went on and got a doctorate and yeah psychotherapeutic psychology is that right that's right yeah yeah so basically uh, i'm a therapeutic psychologist so i work in private practice and see clients and was really kind of doing that out of the music business from when the boo radley split up until around about 2018 so boo radley split up about 2000 and it was about 18 years when I was kind of out of the music business and retrained as a psychologist before stepping back in and, and making new stuff with the Boo Radleys. So yeah, it's been a bit of a different thing and I'm really so pleased that I did it. It's been fabulous to pursue two things that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, that's cool. I read that some of the work you were doing was dealing with male gender roles, toxic masculinity, things like that. Yeah. I was curious if your decision to move into that sort of field, if that was influenced at all by your experiences in the music industry. Yes, in some ways. Throughout the 90s, I don't think I was sort of very comfortable with the kind of some of the misogynist stuff that was around in the British music industry. It had become kind of very misogynistic and and the resurgence of this kind of, I guess, what kind of gets called toxic masculinity now. So partly there is that but that was more the research angle that I took, wanted to kind of look into that. But actually, the music and, and psychology has kind of overlapped because I'm now a member of an organization called the Music Industry Therapists Collective. We're a group of therapists who used to be in the music industry. So we work with people who are in the music industry or have been in the music industry for music industry specific issues burnout on touring and then difficulties with the relationships of being in a band and those kind of things so that's a part of my work as well i mean that's great 
I think just last episode, I was talking to somebody about how we need more of that. <laughs> because as I'm sure you can imagine, you know, we cover a lot of bands from this era who have experienced some serious tragedies. And we'll be talking about one of yeah. those bands today. And I, you know, I don't have statistics here, but it, it seems like there is a higher than normal incidence rate of suicide and, and mental illness yeah. amongst touring bands. So yeah. there, yeah. there is um, the, the, the statistics support that, you know, the against the sort of levels in the general population incidences of anxiety, depression, suicide, they're all much higher in, in kind of touring musicians, touring. And it's not just musicians, it's the touring crew um, and people who work in the music business as well. It's not a particularly healthy industry in terms of uh, mental health right okay well (laughs) (laughs) cheery subject yeah exactly (laughs) well let's go ahead and talk about our first band of the episode this is going to be the only number one song that we hear this episode this is from a band we've heard from before called nirvana they were formed in aberdeen washington in 1987 by high school friends kurt cobain and chris novoselic I read that their first band together was actually a short-lived CCR cover band, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Oh, right, okay. And they went through a slew of drummers uh, before picking up Dave Grohl, who is famously now the lead singer of the Foo Fighters. He joined them as drummer in 1990. And the last time we heard from them, it was shortly after they released their album Nevermind in 1991, which was, I guess we could say, a game changer. It had a huge, huge influence on music and record labels and media and youth fashion and all sorts of things like that. In 1992, the band released Incesticide, which was a collection of B-sides and rarities. One single from that hit the modern rock charts. That was Sliver. And then in 1993, they released their third and final studio album called In Utero. The working title, by the way, was I Hate Myself and Want to Die, which was something of a you know quotation mark joke that Kurt Cobain would use when people asked him how he was feeling. He would frequently say, I hate myself and want to die. It's interesting because obviously in hindsight, it's such a cry for help. It seems so sad, and I'm sure there were people around him who were trying to help him, but back in 1993, I don't know if people understood what they understand now, and if they, they knew as much as they mm-hmm. do now to to hear something like that and go like, hey, we need a serious intervention here. Mm-hmm. But they did change the name of the album, it, change it to In Utero. The album was produced by Steve Albini who previously had helmed some albums for Pixies and The Breeders and Wedding Present. It was recorded for $24,000, which is a tiny sum of money for such a huge band with huge expectations. And uh, when they finished it, they submitted it to the record label, and it was deemed unreleasable. So uh, Nirvana ended up having the album remastered by Bob Ludwig, And the singles from the album were re-engineered by Scott Litt, who is probably most famous for producing a bunch of classic R.E.M. albums. So we're going to hear the first single from the album. It's called Heart Shaped Box, and it spent three weeks at number one on the modern rock charts. Sir, sure. 
absolutely adore it. I mean, Nirvana was such a big part of every musician's life, really. When we first heard Nirvana, they were just kind of perfect amalgamation of the bands that we loved, like the Pixies, like Dinosaur Jr. They were just incredible. And I remember I was very fortunate because I saw Nirvana quite early on in 1990. Oh, wow. They'd released Bleach and they were playing the Reading Festival. It was Friday afternoon. There weren't a huge amount of people watching. I mean, it was a main stage, so it was fairly big. But they were incredible, absolutely incredible. And I remember just thinking, my God, this was amazing. I think this, this is the one that you can see on some of the videos where Kurt does a swan dive through the drums at the end of the set. And I think fractured his arm. They were just a breath of fresh air. They carried with them that kind of same intelligent sensibility as R.E.M. And I just absolutely adored them. And the strange thing was, obviously... Nevermind was a bit commercial for Kurt. And I think, you know, in utero was their attempt to kind of almost be very, very dark. But the thing with something like Heart Shaped Box, it shows what an incredible melodic composer he was. And I think it's only later on, you know, it became very clear what a massive Beatles fan he was. Mm -hmm. And you can just hear it in, in a lot of the two-part harmonies in the chorus and, and those kind of things. And so in spite of trying to make things somehow uncommercial and more alternative and more spiky, you know, he still couldn't help writing beautiful songs. I don't know if he was trying to lose some of his audience that they had gained on Nevermind or if he was just trying to maintain his punk credentials or really I think it was just two parts of his personality and two parts of his interest were colliding here. But there are a number of songs on this album that how would I describe them? Abrasive, I guess. <laughs> They're still good, but they, there's like the abrasive, very heavy songs. And then there's the songs like Heart Shaped Box that are just so melodic and so instantly memorable. And they appeal to everybody, really. If you're into heavier, angrier music, you're going to like it. And if you're into more melodic, beautiful Beatles pop, you're going to love it too. Yeah, the thing we were saying earlier on about the pressures of the music business, you know, I think Kurt kind of felt that and was kind of stuck in something that he wasn't really enjoying. And along with that, you also have the show must go on kind of attitude that's around. And, you know, I think he felt an enormous pressure to sort of be there and be out on the stage. And I don't think particularly enjoyed a lot of that. That's often very, very difficult to know what to do when you end up in that position where, you know, you've worked very, very hard. You get to a position and you find that you're not really enjoying it. You feel like you're letting everybody down. Yeah. In doing research for the song, I found a couple things from Courtney Love that I thought were maybe worth mentioning, <laughs> maybe not. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. One thing was that when she first heard Kurt working on the song, he was in, uh, I guess, their large walk-in closet and she heard the opening riff. She immediately liked it, as you know, I think most people would. And she said this is the one song that she asked Kurt to donate to her for whole. Oh, uh, really? So she walked up, she's uh, like, oh, you're not going to use that riff, are you? Like, do you really need that? And uh, apparently he kicked the door shut and told her to F off. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, well, you would if you heard that. You'd be thinking, yeah, I'd like that. Anybody would want that for themselves. Yeah, and the other thing is, this is another oh. song that Courtney Love claims was written about her. <laughs> it's it's right. shocking how many songs Courtney claims are written about her, but apparently Lana Del Rey somewhat recently covered this song in concert, and Courtney Love 
tweeted to her that this song was written about Courtney Love's vagina. And <laughs> Lana Del Rey needs to be thinking about that next time she performs the song. So, yeah. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be thinking about that when I was singing a song. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's, that's the thing, I think, with Nirvana lyrics. I mean, Courtney could be right. She could be wrong. I mean, I think Kirk Cobain yeah, lyrics yeah. are very open to interpretation. And I'm not even sure that he yeah. totally knew what he was singing about half the time. It was more no, feelings no. and ideas and wordplay and things like yeah. that. But it works. Absolutely. I mean, I think there are little bits that punch through and you think, oh, that could refer to that. But then there are other things, you know, things like cut myself on baby's breath and angel hair. It's- yeah. Those kind of things, they're just good images, they're good wordplay, they don't have to mean anything. Right. Yeah, I guess the only other thing I want to mention is when the album was remastered or re-engineered, Steve Albini was not super happy about it. So in 2013, the album was re-released with a Steve Albini mix. Ah, okay. Supposedly along the lines of what he had in mind initially. I have not heard it. People have mixed feelings about it. But that's out there if anyone wants to give it a listen. Yeah, it's nice to have different versions, I guess. Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to move on down. Since Nirvana was at number one for most of the month, we don't have any more number ones, but we do have a number two, and this is from a band called The Breeders. This was a side project formed in 1989 by Pixies bassist Kim Deal and Throwing Muses guitarist Tanya Donnelly. They released a very good but widely overlooked first album in 1990. By 1993, Pixies had broken up. Tanya Donnelly had left Throwing Muses and formed her own band, Belly. And that left Kim Deal to take over the Breeders as her primary band. So she recruited her twin sister, Kelly, who somewhat famously had never played guitar before taking over duties here as lead <laughs> guitarist. And they picked up Josephine Wiggs on bass and Jim McPherson on drums. And in 1993, they released their second album, Last Splash. Three songs from that album landed on the modern rock charts, including Divine Hammer, Saints, and the one we're going to hear today, the number two hit, Cannonball, which was originally titled Grunge. A portmanteau of grunge and reggae, which apparently Kim thought it sounded like a combination of the two. I don't know that I hear a terribly large amount of reggae in the song, but I guess that was what they were going for. So here it is, Cannonball. I absolutely adore this record. It's absolutely incredible. I used to have this on my answering machine. You know when you used to 
back in the 90s when you had answering machines that you would have to record the outgoing message. So that intro was my answering machine music while I was kind of saying, leave a message for Zeiss. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely loved it. I mean, we were always huge Pixies fans and, you know, used to go and see the Pixies whenever they were in the UK. And actually the first Breeders album, Pod, that was absolutely superb. I mean, it really, really was. Kim Deal was always a huge favourite. You kind of always liked the bits that she did in the Pixies, and she was just so effortlessly cool. You know, she was one of those people that just didn't give a shit, you know, would just sort of be standing there smoking, playing the bass, and just looking like she's having a great time. And then, you know, she made a brilliant album in Pod. That was absolutely incredible. One of the albums of the year that was. Then obviously went on to do the Breeders and and this track I really really love for just the grunge thing. Kind of get it, but it's just one of those things that I really love that just everything kind of gets thrown in and yet it works. You know, it's a great great record. Yeah, we were huge fans of the Breeders. It was it was a real irony because we got to do I think in nineteen ninety we got to do Lollapalooza um, we were playing the second stage and it was fabulous because we saw the Breeders were on the bill and so we thought wow we're going to get to see the Breeders every day that's going to be brilliant but we were actually on stage at the same time as them so we never got to see them I mean we, we got to know them quite well lovely people but um, yeah we, we never got to see them which was a real shame but yeah this record is absolutely superb it's really really good yeah and also, Cannonball in particular, it's a very unusual mm-hmm. song. And it's mm-hmm. it's one of those songs that, because it's so catchy and memorable, I think it's easy to lose sight of how kind of weird it is. Yeah. It was not expected to be the kind of hit that it was. But um, uh, this one actually hit the Hot 100, the, the singles chart mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. Off the top of my head, I feel like it just missed the top 40. But that's, you know, right. that's something Pixies never managed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a really cool song, really unusual. Yeah. There's a fake ending, what, halfway through, mm-hmm. where it seems like the song's over and they wait like a whole measure before coming back in again, yeah. which is fun. Yeah, coming back in full throttle as well, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've just always loved that kind of distorted vocal that she has as well, which is really, really good. And that bass intro is just superb. everything about it there's just lots of little really good hooks all the way along there's just lots and lots of little bits and each of them are good there's nothing wasted in there it's fabulous yeah i also want to mention for any listeners who really like that intersection between 90s alternative rock and more of a classic rock sort of sound if you want to track down the cannonball single the breeders did a cover of aerosmith's lord of the thighs (laughs) (laughs) so if it sounds like something you're interested in go check it out (laughs) all right well the breeders have continued making music sporadically i think they're releasing like a new album once or twice per decade their most recent was 2018 with an album called all nerve so you know if they keep up the pace that they've been keeping up they're probably due for a new album sometime in the next three or four years but i think they did release a new song Somewhat recently, a year or two ago. So, they're, you know, they're still sort of an active band. Mm. We can probably expect something from them in the future. Let's hope so. Yeah. After this album, Kim's sister, Kelly, 
She went into rehab briefly, and while the band was unable to continue, they decided to do a new album anyway, but changed the name. So there's a, an album out there that's basically The Breeders, but it's by The Amps. Oh, I do vaguely remember that. Yeah, The Amps album is a pretty good album, too. I like that one a lot. In fact, I don't know that Kim Deal has released any music that I don't like. <laughs> She's just consistently good. She is. She has a great sensibility. Her taste in music and what she produces is, is fabulous. Next up, we're going to talk about a band that we've talked about, at this point, probably more than any other band on this show. Ah, uh, okay. This is U2. And I've really run out of things to say about them, but <laughs> in case there's new <laughs> listeners, the band was formed in Dublin, Ireland in 1978. And U2 holds the record for the most songs on the modern rock charts, 41 songs that they've placed on the modern rock charts. Wow. Maybe more at this point. My list might be a little outdated. But um, mm. this is probably the fifth or sixth time we talked about them on the show. And if you don't know about U2, then I don't know what to say. <laughs> 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 I guess going back to late 1991, U2 had released their hugely successful Octung Baby album, and oh. it landed six singles on the modern rock charts, including three that hit number one. They followed that album with what they called the Zoo TV Tour, and this was a huge spectacle inspired by technology and consumerism and information overload. Lead singer Bono unveiled a, a number of different characters that he would play, and this tour became the inspiration for their follow-up album, 1993's Zuropa, which was originally intended as an EP, but turned into a full album. Zuropa, in some ways, sounds like a continuation of Octung Baby. It's still interested in like European disco and electronic textures and techno music. But whereas Octung Baby was full of these what I might describe as huge radio-friendly anthems and ballads, Zuropa is not. And it's not a bad album. I think it's actually a pretty good album. But there doesn't seem to be that attempt to write these huge hit singles that many of their previous albums had. Or maybe they attempted it and didn't manage. I'm not sure. I would assume that, they, that those guys know what a hit single sounds like. But it is kind of unusual. If you listen to the album, the lead single... Numb is actually sung or talked by U2 guitarist The Edge rather than Bono. And the last song on the album is, for some reason, sung by Johnny Cash. <laughs> so I'm not totally sure what the band was thinking, but it does have Bono kind of stepping back a little bit from what we would typically think of as like a Bono sort of role. We're going to hear the second single from the album. It's called Lemon. And it reached number three on the modern rock charts. Here it is. really that, that is an awful record i mean i didn't mind numb so much the first one because it was kind of almost a novelty record it was like hey look here's the edge mumbling don't move don't talk out of time don't think don't worry everything 
is. But this is like a sort of Bono trying to be, I don't know what he's trying to be, you know, disco Bowie era something, but it just sounds like trying. I mean, fair play in the fact that they wanted to try and do something different and didn't just continue to trot out Joshua Tree, Rattle and Hum. But that doesn't mean that it's a good record. And weirdly, having listened to both Nirvana and then the Breeders records and hearing how urgent and kind of up to date they still sound and how relevant they still sound. Mm -hmm. Listening to this, which was arguably more futuristic at the time actually just sounds very very dated and very flat so um yeah i don't know what that's about the first thing i noticed with this song is the way bono is singing <laughs> right at the start of the song he's doing some mm. kind of falsetto where yeah. it's not even necessarily recognizable as bono mm -hmm. you know i don't think i hate the song like you do <laughs> but it also it's like if you ask me to sing it right now and i've heard the song i don't know let's say 10 times yeah i'm not sure i could sing much beyond just that lemon yeah see that's the thing for me is that you know what you two have been good at is probably you know they sit down the four of them in a room or however it is they work and they create a song you know and it's the works with the instruments but i think this way of working sounds more like they've got somebody to set up a backing track and get something working and then they try and get something over it and that's not always easy to do sometimes it works but it doesn't sound like it works it just sounds like this is a track that was made and then there's no song in there as you say and and the strength of any band ultimately is down to the songs i think what people love certain bands for is what they write and you know this definitely isn't you two strongest right I think it's worth noting that after this album and maybe one more where they were trying to be a little more experimental and, and branching out from their sound, they retreated to more of what might be considered their classic sound. And they've been stuck in classic sound U2 mode ever since. It's what? It's 45 years since they've probably been making music, you know. Right. So that's such a long time to keep producing it. And, and really... You know, the question is now, what else is there left to be done? I mean, they must enjoy the lifestyle. That being said, they did hit number one on uh, at least one U.S. chart this year, 2023, with the song Atomic City. No, really. And that's an incredible feat. I mean, I, I don't know when their first chart hit was, but yeah, it's at least four decades of producing charting songs and there's not too many bands who can mm. do that or can you know who have done no, that no absolutely mm. yeah all right well enough about you two we're going to be hearing from them again of course but um we're going to move down the charts to uh, our final band of the episode and this is your band the boo radleys uh -huh. okay formed in 1988 yeah roughly yeah this band consists of guitarist and principal songwriter martin carr you, Sice, are the singer and um, also guitarist, I assume, because I've seen you play guitar in some videos. <laughs> yeah. Bassist Tim Brown and drummer Rob yeah. Sika, although he was not the first drummer. He's been with the band for a long time. Yeah. So the Boo Radleys, my understanding is that earlier on, they were generally considered to be a shoegaze band. Does it sound about right? Well, 
It's weird. I think at the time, yes, those comparisons were definitely made. But the very first record, which I kind of almost view as a kind of demo tape now, because it was very early on, released in 1990, I think, is very sort of Steve Albini-esque. It's very raw. It's very fast. It's very driven. The tempo's really upped and it's very sort of scratchy record. Whereas actually the, the second one, Everything's Alright Forever, that was far more shoegazy and that there was a lot of textures there there was a lot of dreamlike sections there was a lot of repetition of rifts that was really the one that was kind of more shoegazy yeah but apart from anything else those things were always I guess just an attempt to describe a band you know that's what's always difficult but it never really fitted yeah mm. by 1993 however the band was starting to change you released the album Giant Steps which I've heard was named after a John Coltrane album. It's a really cool album. It's really good. Also, I think it's worth noting that it ended up on a couple Pitchfork media lists. I think it was listed as number 25 best shoegaze album of all time and also number 40 best Britpop album of all time. So okay, just the fact that it's on both of those lists, I think, says something about the direction that the band was moving. First of all, there's a lot of songs. It's a 17-song album, but you can hear shoegaze swirls and sounds on there for sure but i think there's also psychedelic pop influences and correct Mm. me if i'm wrong but i feel like there's some tracks with a little bit of reggae slipping in there yeah 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 there is is grunge yeah Mm -hmm, yep you know there's some horns here and there the big difference with this album i think was it was the first time we'd worked without a producer we were sort of pitched into the music industry before I think we were really ready you know we didn't know very much so like I say the first album was very quick it was only eight tracks it was more of a demo than anything else mm-hmm. and then everything's all right forever we were sort of put with a producer who we didn't really know how to get across what we wanted and it just felt that it wasn't really us so giant steps was the first time we'd been allowed in the studio by ourselves we were going to produce it ourselves and we felt confident to do that which is why there's just lots and lots and lots of ideas in there you know and really I think it's that mishmash and not ever being told no so normally if you had a producer at the desk and somebody kind of went oh you know how about we stick some horns on here and a producer might say oh you know I'm not hearing horns or that'll take it in the wrong direction or what have you if anybody went what about some horns on that bit we'd say yeah fine and put on whatever was thrown at it you know and just like yeah let's see what it sounds like And I think once we'd recorded it, we just left it on there. I think that was the kind of style it was made in, which is why it's kind of a very eclectic and kind of hard to pin down because everyone was coming up with so many different ideas and so many different influences and just kind of saying, oh, let's try that bit and let's try that bit off so-and-so album. I want to listen to that the other day. It'd be really good if we did that. And so that was what made it more free-flowing, more than any of our albums, I think. Yeah. Two singles from this album reached number 30 on the modern rock charts. Ah. The one we're going to be hearing today is the first single, Lazarus. Here it is.
it's a kind of epic song for us, really. And it's probably the only one that's never really left the set list. Mm -hmm. Lazarus holds a special place because Lazarus was actually recorded before Giant Steps. Um, Lazarus was actually made with a producer. So it was made with Alan Mulder. Alan was really good, actually. Alan did let us kind of run with stuff, which is why it's starting to sound more like Giant Steps. It's a really, really good song. It's not one of my favorite Boo songs, but it's that kind of monolithic thing that people really associate us with. You know, I think for an awful lot of people, it's their favorite thing that the band ever did. I think at the time it was quite different, you know, the use of the horns in a certain way. You know, they weren't the traditional brass section So I think it was a kind of bit of a strange record for people, but one where the band suddenly sounded a bit more forceful, I guess. Mm -hmm. Not polished, but a bit more sort of well-constructed. You know, it just felt very dynamic. You know, I love playing the track. People still love it. You know, 30 years later, there's an awful lot of people, you know, will go crazy for it. So, yeah, love it. Yeah, cool. Mm. You know, one other thing I wanted to talk about is your singing voice which I think is very distinct. And I don't know if this is the best description, but I I read some reviews where they referred to it as choir boy vocals. Did this voice just come out and like, this is how I sing? Or was it like more thoughtful? it, 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 It was really strange because it wasn't because I could sing that I was a singer. It was like the band kind of started when we were school kids together. And we decided what we were going to do before we could play guitars or sing. It was like, right, you're the guitarist. I'll be the singer. You know, you be the bass player kind of thing. And we just kind of stuck with it. So when I first started singing with the band, my voice was actually quite deep. I was actually singing in a a lower register. That is one of the influence of My Bloody Valentine. And a bit Dinosaur Jr. in some respects is that the vocals are very low in the mix, not very punctuated. They drift along with the rest. And so that was kind of how I started singing in the first couple of albums. Giant Steps started to come out of myself a bit more and find my own voice. But one of the weird things, and you'd think we'd have recognized this, but we weren't very clued up as musicians, but around about 1996, after we'd been making records for six years, we suddenly realized Martin writes in the wrong key for me. One of the things that I said to him about 1996 was, I have to have the songs up front. You know, you can't just turn up in the studio with ideas you need to give me the songs up front so i can work them and that was one of the big big differences that when he gave me the songs up front i was able to sit there and work out and think this is not in my key and drop it or lift it or whatever and suddenly it was kind of okay now i can sing it so i think the singing on the first couple of albums is actually quite uncertain because i'm always struggling with the key in a lot of respects and so since then since about 1996 it's become a lot lot stronger because i've found the keys that i can really sing in yeah interesting um yeah all right so like i said boo radley's hit the modern rock charts one more time reaching number 30 with barney and me also from the album giant steps and in 1995 the boo radley's released their follow-up album to giant steps it was called wake up and this one hit number one in the uk and the single wake up boo hit number nine on the uk singles charts my english listeners are most likely all very very familiar with this song wake up boo Mm. but you know it didn't chart over here in the u.s at all 
And I think it's such an immediate, likable song that I'm just going to play a clip of it because I think uh, there's a lot of listeners who are going to be drawn to it. So here's a clip of Wake Up Boo. Anyone listening will clearly notice that this is also a different sound. And in fact, you know, when I played the opening for my wife, where the horns come in, she immediately said, Boo Radleys are a ska band? <laughs> and I said, no, no, keep listening. Uh, but yes, there's there's quite a horn section there, and it's a, it's a yeah. different sound. You know, originally when the song was written, there is an earlier version when it's more kind of rocky. There is a trumpet on there, but it's kind of a lone trumpet. Mm-hmm. And then we just kind of realized, you know, this doesn't work like this. It needs something different. And so then that was kind of when you got the Motown stomp beat and the big horn section and yeah it's a very very popular pop record that just continues to get played every time there's a spring day out comes that song you know it's uh, eternally popular with breakfast djs that makes a lot of sense yeah it's a cool song for sure very poppy also a cool album i think wake up is great thank you i don't know if you can put an answer to this exactly but how famous are the boo radleys in england (laughs) are you recognizable when you walk down the street no it's actually a really good question because I would say we're not famous at all. We are famous for that one song. You know, that one song is everywhere. And YouTube is such an enormous godsend for me because when I kind of ventured into that other things, you know, and, and kind of like just taking my kids to school, people would say, what did you used to do? And I'd say, I was in a band, you know, called the Boo Radleys and people would go, oh, I never heard of them. <laughs> and they still say that. And they were saying that, but now I can say, oh, it's fine. Just go and put Boo Radleys in YouTube and play the first song that comes up. And then people come back going, oh my God, of course I know that song. Yeah. You know, because everybody knows the song. People don't know the band. Having said that, we're one of those sort of polarizing bands where some people won't have ever heard of us, but other people are fanatics. So I've also met people, you know, throughout the course of my training and this kind of thing who have been absolutely dumbfounded to learn that I was in the Boo Radleys. Oh my God, seriously. You know, I'll say my brother is the biggest Boo Radleys fan, but no, we've never been a recognizable band. You know, we've never been recognized on the street and I'm really pleased about that. It's not something I would want. Sure. I mean, that was part of my follow-up question. I was going to ask if you've ever had patients come in who (laughs) are less interested in psychotherapy or whatever and more interested in hanging out with a a Boo Radley. No, it's really interesting. I mean, it's a lot of money to pay to just hang out with a Boo Radley. (laughs) For a long time, I was not out there as that was who I used to be. So I was just Dr. Simon Rowbottom. And no one mentioned it. But when the Boo Radleys reformed in about 2019... A lot of things started to appear on the internet that said, you know, Simon's a psychologist now. So when people 
are googling me as they inevitably do you know as a psychologist they then come up with the band stuff so they then spot it but it's never a big deal i say yeah it's what i used to do any questions feel free to ask me but thankfully it's not a big deal and you know and because of the music industry therapist collective you know the two things are getting more intertwined as well so I will actually appear at festivals and talks and conferences where I am size from the Boo Radleys and a doctor of psychotherapeutic psychology. So the two things now go together. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned the Boo Radleys got back together around 2019 yeah. or so, and yeah. they've released a couple albums since then. Most recently, 2023's Eight, which presumably is your eighth album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's available wherever people listen to music. Yeah, Spotify, iTunes, those wherever they get it, um, that's available. There's an album before that as well that we released in 2021, I think, called Keep On With Falling. That was our first album back, so that's available as well. I mean, we'll be out 2024. We'd be desperate to come to the States. Unfortunately, as you probably hear from a lot of people based in the UK, it's quite financially difficult. Yes. You know, we always loved playing in the states and we would love to do it again whether that's financially viable or not i don't know but we'll be out back on tour in 2024 is there anything you want to promote related to the collective you're in if there's band members out there who are in need of some services absolutely there's two things for musicians about mental health the first is our services we're the Music Industry Therapist Collective, MITC. So if you Google that, and we do work worldwide. We have 25 therapists. We have half a dozen in America. We have several in Europe. We have a lot in the UK. People are often away on tour or they keep very difficult hours. And so we often work online. So there's that kind of immediate help there. But the big thing is that there is a book out that came out last year, edited by Tamsin Embleton, who runs... MITC and that's called Touring and Mental Health and it's a huge piece of work you know Tamsin has gone into a huge amount of work to get an awful lot of information about what touring is like and it gives a huge amount of advice about all aspects of touring you know whether that's mental health or physical health vocal health tiredness sleep nutrition every band should really have a copy out on their road just to dip into it also has about dealing with relationships and interband relationships are always difficult people who are interested in that kind of thing really need to have a look at that that'll be available on amazon wherever you are okay great i will put some links in the description for this episode brilliant listeners if anyone has not rated reviewed or subscribed or any of those things i'd really appreciate it if you would do that if anybody wants to get in contact with me you can reach me at this is modern rock at gmail.com size thank you so much for joining me on this episode it's been a pleasure yeah it's been a pleasure for me too we are going to go out on a third boo radley song because why the heck not <laughs> this one is from 2023's eight the song is called Seeker. This is another very poppy track that Tim wrote. And I think it's, well, certainly I think it's the best song he's ever written. And it's very, very pop. The brass is back in there as well. So if you like Wake Up Boo, this is the sort of the version of the nearly 30 years later. Sounds great. Here it is, Seeker. All these years I've sailed the seas Looking for some 